Welcome, everyone, to another Your Amigos podcast Christmas special. We have bladder cancer today. Um, hopefully, you heard some Christmas intro music. Always trying to uh, improve our game here. So hopefully, there was some good Christmas intro music. Tom uh, is actually in a pub now. That's background noise. And I'd, I'd like to congratulate you on the production value. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> value has never been used in, in association with these podcasts, but yes. Um, so we're, uh, Matt Galsky is here, and uh, Matt, if you want to introduce yourself, and then I'm going to ask you to sort of give us sort of some h- highlights from 2020 in bladder cancer. Sounds great. So I'm Matt Galsky. I'm a medical oncologist at the ITM School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I focus on bladder cancer. Uh, happy to be here today for the, the year end. It's been quite a year. Uh, and should I jump into some highlights? Yeah, jump in yeah, with your on, number one highlight. Okay, so I would say probably the number one highlight, and I don't think this this will be too controversial, is the Evalumab maintenance study. Uh, and uh, Tom led that study, so I'm sure he has a lots, lots of comments about it as well. Um, I think this was a big surprise for the community. Uh, we were expecting chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade really to become standard of care, as it has in some other malignancies. Uh, 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 several studies launched to test that hypothesis. One lone randomized phase three study launched to test the hypothesis using a switch maintenance approach rather than a concomitant approach. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, the, the switch maintenance strategy really came out ahead. And why do you think that is? What's fundamentally different about combination versus sequence here? I, I think th- there, there's, there's a few factors at play. I think one factor is that the switch maintenance population is just a different population than the concurrent upfront treatment. Obviously, you're selecting patients uh, who had at least stable disease on chemotherapy. So um, you're selecting out some of the, the better prognosis tumors. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't say that this approach is invalid. It, it, of course, it's incredibly valid. It just means that uh, your um, ability to dissect a signal is probably a little bit easier because you have better prognosis patients. I think the second issue with the frontline studies, uh, the concurrent studies, is that this was really the first generation of studies that we pooled cisplatin and carboplatin, and we did that for pragmatic reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still trying to figure out the impact that that had on these studies and the results. And then I think the third issue, was, which is linked to the issue that I just mentioned, is whether or not there could be some detrimental effect of, uh, of combining chemotherapy and immune checkpoint blockade at the same time. It, and I guess I want to balance the statement about detrimental because the, the Invigor study met its co-primary endpoint of progression-free survival. There's a significant improvement in PFS. The keynote study showed uh, a similar Kaplan-Meier curve, although the PFS uh, didn't reach statistical significance. The curves look pretty similar. So when I say detrimental, I don't mean harmful. There's still some signal of benefit combining the drugs. It's just not as much as you would expect. Matt, is that signal driven by the maintenance period during the... because both Pembro plus um, immune plus chemo and Tezo plus uh, chemo was the chemotherapy combination, but also there was the maintenance period of both Pembro and Tezo because you only stop therapy at progression, not after six cycles. Do you think that maintenance period could have accounted for some of that benefit? 
Absolutely, it could. And, you know, that hypothesis could be tested in not a definitive way, but in an exploratory way, just do a landmark analysis at the time that you would expect those patients to complete six cycles of treatment and see if, if the signal is strengthened. Matt, could you talk quickly about monotherapy and then about combination therapy with uh, CTLA-4 pdl one Sure. So I think the monotherapy story is equally surprising and complex. We have three studies that included a monotherapy arm versus standard of care chemotherapy in the frontline setting for metastatic urethelial cancer uh, in Vigor 130, Keynote 365. Did I get Keynote right? Sorry. Three, uh, 361. 361. 361. Uh, Keynote 361 and um, the Danube study. Um, and so all of those tested the hypothesis of monotherapy, PD-1 or PD-1 blockade versus chemotherapy, although they did it in a slightly different way in terms of the statistical analysis plan, all included an intent to treat comparison of those arms in addition to uh, comparison limited to the group of patients with high expression of PDL one The studies, the intent to treat Kaplan-Meier curves from all three studies look almost identical. Uh, initial periods favor chemotherapy. The curves cross slightly so later on, about eight to ten to twelve months, depending on the study. Um, the PDL1 uh, high subgroup analyses, though, differ substantially, and they differ probably not surprisingly because the populations of patients defined as PDL1 high differed across three studies from 24% to 60%. In the Invigor 130 study, which had the smallest proportion of patients with the high PD-1 expressing tumors, there is a signal uh, that a frontline immune checkpoint blockade performs a bit better than chemotherapy. That signal is not seen in the other two studies where 50 to 60% of patients were defined as high PD-1. So let me question for both of you. Chemo plus IO in, in bladder cancer, is it, where do we go from here? Is it is it dead? I know Invigor has some positive results, but you know, is that something to build on or is it simply, or is the chemo then maintenance of Valimab or maintenance immune therapy going to be the standard upon which we build? So I can talk about that because sure. there are two studies which I think Matt leads. One is a study called Nile, which is chemotherapy plus Duvalimab, and I don't hold huge hopes for that. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with Duvalimab, but I think we've shown that the, the design of 361 and the design of 130 with pembrolizumab and atezolizumab respectively um, suggest that uh, doing the same experiment a third time right. is unlikely to result in a different result. So we can assume that arm may not be successful, but there is a CTA4 PDL1 arm, Dervatremi plus chemo, and in the Danube trial, the Derva plus Tremi combination, it looked like the CTA4 added about 10% of activity to, um, to the PD, PDL1. And if that is the case and you get a 10% bounce in response rates and a 10% increase in PFS and a 10% increase in OS, those trials will go from negative to positive because, as you know, they're a bit borderline mm -hmm. at the moment. So there is hope in that arm. And then there's also the um, nivolumab plus chemotherapy arm, which is in the context of a three-arm study, which includes ipilimumab and nivolumab, which I'm very excited about. And again, that, but that's a cisplatin-only population. And there is an ongoing debate, and I think Matt and I probably disagree a bit about this, but there's an ongoing debate about whether there's a big difference between cisplatin and carboplatin in combination. And if that were the case, and there are some indicators from 130, but not 1361, that there are some subtle differences between the two. And if that were the case, then that trial may indeed be positive because it's focused only on the cisplatin population. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to bring it up to you. So I'll, I'll remind you that Niall actually capped the carpal plantin, uh, the, the cis-ineligible patients at 20%. So I think that's a trial that's testing this hypothesis indirectly as well. And then, of course, the study of 901, whether or not that signal with cisplatin versus carboplatin is based on um, confounders with other prognostic factors versus whether or not there's actually something immunologic going on there. I don't know that we should close the door on that quite yet. I think we might be hearing more about that. Um, so I, I, I don't I, I think we need to understand that better. But to answer your question, Brian, right now. Uh, upfront chemotherapy, switch maintenance, immune checkpoint blockade is the standard. Standard of care, but there's still some data um, coming, as you alluded to, and Tom seems to hold out hope that CTLA-4 might get that combination over the line in the frontline setting. Is fair. So let's uh, let's move on to we we have called these three gifts in previous podcasts. Your your second. We've got to come something different, Brian. I've left the pub now, by the way. So oh, I'm, I'm slightly more co- I'm slightly more coherent. I hope. <laughs> or slightly less. <laughs> um, I was I was going to ask how that works. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's a good point, Matt. Is, is that one of those reverse pubs? <laughs> let me let me go have a quick think about that. I'll be back with you in a few minutes. <laughs> All right, gift number two, second biggest uh, happening in bladder cancer in 2020. Can we do the 12 days of Christmas instead, Brian? Uh, we we could. I don't know if we have twelve things to talk about, but okay, let's pretend we're on number six or something. Okay, let's fine. keep going. <laughs> Seventh day of Christmas. So, so I, I would say the next biggest story is probably uh, antibody drug conjugates in in, in urothelial cancer, uh, and there's two ADCs that we've heard most about, although there are a couple of anti-HER2-based ADCs that there's emerging data for as well that are looking intriguing. Um, but the two ADCs that we've heard most about are, of course, infortimabidotin directed against nectin uh, and sasituzumab gobotecan directed against trope 2. Uh, both of these drugs have been explored in large single-arm phase 2 studies in patients who've had chemotherapy and immune checkpoint blockade with respectable response rates, given what we've seen with, uh, with chemotherapy in the past. Uh, response rates up in the 50% range, 45 to 50% with infortimab, and a little bit lower with sasituzumab. Infortimab's approved for use in the United States based on the results of single-arm phase 2 data. Uh, and uh, a phase three study, which hasn't been reported yet, uh, but there has been a press release uh, comparing Infortimab with uh, standard of care chemotherapy in this setting, uh, showed a significant improvement in uh, survival. Really the first uh, study testing this, uh, uh, the first phase three study in this relatively new disease state that's been created as as our treatment landscape has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think Tom uh, led that study, and so he probably has more to say about that. Um, Matt, what do you think about um, the adverse event profile of infortimabidotin? Um, people say to me it's an immune therapy, but obviously, well, not obviously, but it's actually an antibody drug, drug conjugate and the payload is chemotherapy. Um, what do you think about the adverse event profile and is it distinct from immune therapy? Uh, I think it's very different than immune checkpoint blockade and I think it's chemotherapy-like. Um, that's chemotherapy like L-I-K-E, not light L-I-G-H-T. Um, <laughs> I think... That's not me dropping things down the stairs, by the way. <laughs> Just in case I'm confused about that. I, I, not, like... I don't appreciate the background noise. Everything's getting blamed on me because I'm trying to the pub, you see. <laughs> I thought you actually fell down a place. <laughs> that was me just struggling with the stairs. I feel fine. I feel fine. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it's chemotherapy-like. Um, although I, I would argue, you know, 
relatively better tolerated than our combination chemotherapy regimens. Um, and there's some neuropathy associated with it. There's some fatigue, there's rash, and, um, and there's this issue with hypoglycemia that seems to be talked about by different people in different ways. Um, do you feel um, that, and, and this is, I guess, is the key question, um, in the U.S., now, the landscape's completely changed, I'd imagine, because you're giving chemotherapy first, maintenance, evalimab, mm-hmm. and then second line now, you're giving EV, which is uh, a seismic shift. Because before the 301 trial, the randomized lay trial was, it was a third line trial, but because we're now giving maintenance immune therapy, that's pushed everything up. So it's a drug which is going to get quite widely used from a global perspective. Would you agree with that? Uh, no, no question about it. And I think like all of the drugs that we've integrated uh, into our treatment uh, over the past couple of years, there's a learning curve with this drug, just as there is with uh, Ertafitinib and just as there is with Immune Checkpoint Blockade. Uh, we have a whole new set of um, specialists that we need to call on with, with this drug, uh, and we need to understand it better. And obviously, education is key to that, and experience is key is to it Is there anything, well. anything besides just holding the drug for the neuropathy? Um, so my feeling on it is you just need to be very mindful of the patients, yeah. and you need to intervene early. Intervene like whole drug. Yeah, yeah. So you should be play- so it's not the it's a drug which you need to see the patients, have a conversation, and not give day fifteen if necessary, and then come back the next time. If you treat through neuropathy, you can get into trouble quite quickly. Yeah. So there is a skill associated with it, but it's a great I think it's a very effective agent. Now I've got two questions about it. Number one is there is a tr- upfront frontline trial with Fortumabodotin and Pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. Um, do you hold pr- hope for that trial? And then number two is are ADCs, when we sequence them, cross-resistant with one another? Um, so I, uh, I, was, uh, I really loved your discussion with, uh, with Bill Kalin um, in terms of... <laughs> the debate he got crushed in? You mean that one? <laughs> I, actually, I actually didn't do as badly as you make out, Brian. I, I, was, I was laughing my whole, my whole ride home from work. Um, so, I, you know, one of the things that I loved about that debate was, was this concept of non-cross-resistance and drug combinations and that potentially being a way forward in it, not perhaps being as elegant as dissecting mechanisms of resistance, but, but that's what's worked in the past. And I think that might be what we're dealing with with uh, Enfortimab plus, uh, plus Pembrolizumab. I think it might be um, different than what we've seen with Chemotherapy plus uh, Immune Checkpoint Blockade just based on the frontline cyst-ineligible waterfall plots. I mean, clearly, the response rate with that regimen, even though it's a smallest single-arm phase two study, is unlike anything we've seen before. And so I, I do hold hope for it. Um, and, uh, and I think ultimately we, we need to test these strategies definitively and see we've been surprised many times. Sure. And how about the cross resistance from one antibody drug conjugate to another? Yeah. So we, so we know that, oh, oh, the, the two antibody drug conjugates, I thought, I thought you were referring to the, um, uh, infortimab and immune checkpoint blockade, because we actually have some we have some information about that in the absence of chemotherapy. Now we have a data set in a press release uh, from patients who had received just immune checkpoint blockade as frontline treatment and then got second line in Fortimab and the response rate is 50%. Yeah. Um, so, so we know that there's non-cross resistance there in terms of the two antibody drug conjugates, there's only anecdotal data. Yeah. And I've heard people say who had both trials open, they've seen some responses, but, uh, but we have no, Hard no different. Yes. 
Um, Matt, we're going to shift gears and we're going to zoom into the Advent, neo-Advent space. Uh, let's... Tom, you don't get to yeah. decide the gifts of Christmas, Matt. Oh, we're on... to decide. <laughs> no, yeah, okay. no, You're changing the Christmas. rules. It's the days of Christmas, Brian. We're on day days of eight. Of okay, you, you, you decide what's on day eight of Christmas. That seems reasonable. Isn't that, yeah. Isn't that, that four turtle, four that turtle dro- yeah. doves or something? <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's driving this bus? Yeah, it's hard to tell most times. <laughs> Um, all right, Matt. It's up to you. Third, third, third gift. Third day of Christmas. You can choose whatever you like, Matt. That's the point. I think. Oh, <laughs> let's see. Let's see. I, I mean, I think it has to be the uh, the neo adjuvant data sets. Um, uh, obviously, very compelling data sets from Tom uh, and Andrea Necki uh, and um, others with either single agent immune checkpoint blockade or combination showing path uh, complete response rates that are quite respectable. Uh, and um, and certainly within the range of what we see with chemotherapy. Do you feel, Matt, that there is um, the adjuvant trials have been well? The adjuvant study we know about has been disappointing. We don't know about the other trial yet. Um, you know, it's positive, but we don't know the details. We kind of have got to assume, I guess, that the adjuvant approach at the moment doesn't look as successful as we hoped. Do you think the neoadjuvant approach will be more successful? And do you think that these responses that we're seeing are real or in a randomized trial, they'll turn out not to be relevant? I think they're real. I think that the impact of TUR on PATH complete response rates in these, in these single arm studies, it, it's, it's going to bring down the PATH CR rate a little bit um, uh, once you factor in what's being achieved with TUR alone. But I think they're real. I, I, and one would expect them to be real based on what we see in the metastatic setting. And um, I think the neoadjuvant adjuvant question is a really interesting one. I was reviewing some of the slides from the melanoma bridge meeting, um, and obviously they're way in front of us in terms of, of actual clinical data sets comparing neoadjuvant with adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. Uh, and both, both from a clinical and translational standpoint, it seems like there is a benefit to giving treatment with immune checkpoint blockade in the neoadjuvant setting as compared to the adjuvant setting. Um, and the clinical data, there are small randomized data sets, suggest uh, some benefit with the neoadjuvant versus the adjuvant approach. But it, the, the, we certainly know from melanoma that that doesn't mean that the adjuvant approach doesn't work. Um, and I think we're going to learn that in, in urethelial cancer as well. And so given what we said about chemo plus IO in the metastatic setting, which jury's still out, but what we know so far, do you think if this neoadjuvant immune therapy pans out, is it going to be a replacement for chemotherapy? Do you think it'll be in combination? I mean, where, where would you go next? That, thank you for that question. Cause I want to put that's like the third podcast in a row where the guest is going to be for a good question. Let the record reflect. And the, the reason that I'm thanking you is because that reminded me of a question. I wanted to put Tom on the spot. Oh, sweet. Because uh, we were talking about chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade in the metastatic setting, but there are trials in the neoadjuvant setting, which are ongoing. Mm -hmm. Um, Tom, should we still be doing those studies? Do you know, um, <laughs> well, I've got a bit of a, I lead one of them. So um, we definitely should do that one. <laughs> um, listen, I, uh, what, look. Wow, I've that, never heard Tom at a loss for words before. I think that's not just because I've been in the pub. The, the, answer, <laughs> the, the answer to the question is a philosophical one. Oh boy, and, here we go. Yeah, and it, <laughs> What I can tell you so far is immune checkpoint inhibitors are active in urethelial cancer. 
neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitors are active in urothelial cancer. And the chemotherapy combination in the metastatic space has been disappointing, but, and this is an important but, we have not got the, we've not understood the biology of different stages of urothelial cancer um, in as much detail as we should. And importantly, um, in the neoadjuvant setting or the, um, in the, the adjuvant space, um, PDL1 expression is higher, the immune infiltration is higher, and it may be that the difference in biology at that space may result um, in a different outcome. So do, if you said with hindsight, um, chemotherapy plus immune therapy is a home run in the neoadjuvant space. I think if you said two years ago, was that a really good idea? I think everyone would say yes, and everyone did. As it currently stands, does it look fantastic? Well, no, it doesn't. But do remember that. Uh, <laughs> but do remember that there was a small increase in response rate associated with keep with immune therapy um, in the pembrolizumab study, about ten percent, not huge, but small increase. Um, there was a PFS benefit, although I accept completely that that was mainly driven after you stopped the the chemotherapy. Uh, the chemotherapy. Um, and the biology is different. So I think it's a justified scientific question. I think the chance of positivity is reduced. But the reality is we don't know. There's a study called the BLAST study, and, um, which was chemotherapy plus neo, neo, well, neoagent chemotherapy plus nivolumab. And the results of that trial, so, I mean, the, the PASCR rate, I think, was 55%, which some people say is very high. Other people said, well, actually, there was a degree of patient selection. It was a single-arm trial. But it wasn't 30%. You know, so it was 55. So it's at least as good as. So mm -hmm. is the trial w worthwhile scientific question? Yes. Is it a high likelihood of positivity? No. Have I managed to guess the trials <laughs> up to date successfully? Correct. No, I haven't. And therefore, this trial is bound to be positive on that basis alone. Tom likes so to ask I, himself questions and then answer them if you haven't noticed. I, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And, um, and remember the Invigor study, even though that overall response rate wasn't uh, as much higher as we would expect. The, the complete response rate was actually almost double. It was 16 versus that, 7, wasn't it? 16 it, versus 7. It, that's right. So it was, and maybe that's what matters in the perioperative mm -hmm. setting, the depth of response. So I completely agree. Makes sense. Um, uh, and I know th this is probably not great on air, but I just got uh, uh, my, uh, my phone's almost out of batteries. Um, that's fine. We haven't had the guest actually cut off of the form, which would be actually it would be welcome. Be There's welcome. several firsts on this podcast. Yeah. So. so it would be happy if you did actually cut it out. Because <laughs> then I can say pretty much exactly what I like. But after that, I'm... <laughs> well, I think, I think we've covered the major highlights. Anything else we missed? I would like to ask one more question, if sure. I may. One more day of Christmas, uh, if I may. Uh, Matt, in the neoadjuvant setting, we now have an EV plus Pembro trial. Um, we have other neoadjuvant combinations. Um, what, what, where, where should we? And of course, we have the FGF inhibitors, which you haven't talked about, which I'm going to talk about for one second after this. What do we do? We've suddenly got an armory. We've never had that before. We've got antibody drug conjugates. We've got um, chemotherapy. We've got immune therapy. We've got FGF, and we've got CTLA4. All that seem to have a signal, but we still have single agent chemotherapy in front line, and we still have neoagent chemotherapy, which the global community doesn't want to give. How are we going to make the changes needed to transform the landscape and make reduce the re the relapse rate from fifty percent from surgery and increase survival from twelve months? Because this is the, almost for me what we've done during this last five years is identify five good targets. The question for me is how we use them to jump to the next step. How are we going to do that? I think we need to do it through randomized studies the way that, that we always make advances in, in 
uh, oncology. Um, and I think the studies that you online will help to do that. I think we're already going to see some strides uh, in the perioperative management of urothelial cancer. Uh, and I think this is where, with immune checkpoint blockade, I think this is where we have the biggest potential impact as medical oncologists on the lives of these patients. Um, and so I think we just need to figure out how best to use each of those classes of drugs in this setting to maximize cure. Sounds good to me. Yeah, that was great. Tom, are you satisfied? I'm actually pretty happy. Gifts? Yeah, I think okay. we're on day 10 of Christmas. And we started <laughs> day six, so it was a long way from perfect. <laughs> hey, Matt, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us. You got it. My pleasure. Appreciate and it. Knowledge. Always entertaining. Yeah, bye All right, now. Stay safe. Bye. We'll see you soon.